Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cutts. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I welcome film critics A.O. Scott and Michael Phillips to talk about movies, music, and the Oscars. Plus, we'll review the new albums from Johnny Cash and Gil Scott Heron, and then I'll pop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time to welcome our newest affiliate. Yes, Greg, whenever a station adds Sound Opinions to its airwaves, we like to say hello and play a little bit of music from their part of the world. And man, oh man, is it hard to narrow it down for Nashville. Music City, one of the music capitals of this fine country. I am so excited that Sound Opinions has been added to WPLN Nashville Public Radio. No kidding, right? We were talking about this for like 20, 25 minutes. Because yeah. where do you start? Tough choice. I mean, one of the greatest music cities in the United States. You know, a center of the industry as well. And Nashville means different things to so many different people. I mean, do you go with the current Nashville superstars or do you go with the classic Carter family or Hank Williams or, or Hank the Third? We decided we wanted to pay tribute to Nashville with two artists. One current who has just moved to Nashville from Detroit and one of the superstars of the last half century from Nashville. Dolly Parton, I think, is often overlooked for the depth of her songwriting because the personality is so much larger than life. You know, she's a superstar, right? But the songs are there and a new generation is discovering that and doing their own unique interpretations of those songs. I'm thinking, of course, of the White Stripes cover of Jolene. You know, it's got a female protagonist in the original. Jack White doesn't flip the gender role and finds a reading there that I, I don't know if Dolly likes it or not. I don't know if Nashville Nashville likes it or not. We love it, and we think it's it's two generations of Nashville in one. So welcome, WPLN Nashville Public Radio. Here is the White Stripes, Jolene on Sound Opinions. Your beauty is beyond compare with flaming locks of almond hair With ivory skin and eyes of emerald green Your smile is like a breath of spring And your voice is soft like summer That's the White Stripes covering Dolly Parton's Jolene on Sound Opinions, and we welcome WPLN Nashville Public Radio. 
And he says in a little while you'll be all right All he gives is a humbug pill A dose of dope and a great big bill Tell me how can a poor man stand such times and That is How Can a Poor Man Stand Such Times and Live, Bruce Springsteen's version of the blind Alfred Reed Depression-era song. Ticketmaster was trying to make a lot of Springsteen fans a whole lot poorer last year when they were overcharging them for concert tickets. At 14 Springsteen shows last year, when you signed on to Ticketmaster, a lot of fans were redirected to Tickets Now, a secondary ticketing service, and asked to pay quite a bit more for Springsteen concert tickets. Well, now the Federal Trade Commission has been involved in investigating this controversy for the last year, and they have concluded that thousands of Springsteen fans were ripped off and are owed over a million dollars in damages. So that Ticketmaster and Tickets Now were taken to task for redirecting Springsteen fans to much more expensive tickets than they normally would have paid for. Tickets Now being Ticketmaster's in-house scalping arm. Exactly. And this controversy came right before the hearings for the Ticketmaster Live Nation merger last year in Congress and was seen as a major blow to the prospects of this merger. Well, of course, as we have reported in recent weeks, Jim, Live Nation and Ticketmaster have indeed merged. But this ruling, I think, indicates some of the possible damage that this merger could cause. The fact that there was some collusion and the FTC concluding that there were some deceptive practices here that can no longer be tolerated. In other words, uh, Tickets Now was selling phantom tickets. They were selling tickets to consumers for exorbitant prices that they didn't actually have. And then when they weren't able to deliver on those tickets, the refunds didn't quite match up with what the fans were paying. Representative Bill Pascrell of New Jersey commented on this recent FTC decision by saying the FTC did exactly what the U.S. Department of Justice failed to do in its approval of the Ticketmaster Live Nation merger, put the rights of American consumers first. Listening to Sound Opinions. Hollywood's biggest night, the Oscars, is coming up next week, but for the first time, the award show's producers have decided not to include the best song performances as part of the broadcast. Now, Greg and I always have music on the brain, but we wanted to turn to our critical colleagues in the film world to get their take on music in the movies. A.O. Scott of the New York Times, better known as Tony to his friends, and Michael Phillips, the film critic at the Chicago Tribune, are, of course, also the co-hosts of TV's At the Movies. Tony, Michael, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Now, before we get into this, I just got to say one thing here. Now, if you guys want to follow in this Siskel Ebert Cot Derogatus tradition. <laughs> One of you got to gain a little weight, okay? I, well, just I, I mean to keep things, you know, I, r- right. I, I've been I've been working on it. I want to be the fat one. <laughs> Damn it, Tony Scott, putting in his pitch for the being the fat one. Um, I think it's the, the finer the movie tradition. Show, yeah, you know, <laughs> Abbott Costello, Siskel Ebert, Derogatus Scott. No, no. Among many reasons that we were having you on the show, gentlemen, is that the Academy Awards are imminent, and uh, of course there are lots of movies and actors and actresses being nominated. We don't care about that. We're about (laughs) music. Do you care? But do you care about stuff like best song and uh, best film score? 
I absolutely do. I, I think film music is is one of the X factors in why we love the movies. It's the secret ingredient along with, you know, there's, there's certain elements of movie making that work on you subliminally more than rationally. I think, you know, what an editor does for a living, what a cinematographer can do, and what a composer can do to kind of bring out something in a scene, an emotion, a song, all the rest of it. We don't often even recognize while it's working on us why it is working on us or why it isn't working on us. And, you know, this year, especially in Best Original Score, there's a composer I, I that I've just loved for years. I think he's the best guy working in contemporary film right now, Michael Giacchino, who's done a lot for Disney Pixar, and he's nominated this year for Up. And that's a film that absolutely would not be the film it is without Giacchino's score. Michael, you uh, you mentioned Up, which is up for Best Original Score, along with Fantastic Mr. Fox, which would be my choice, Sherlock Holmes, Avatar, and The Hurt Locker. What do you listen for in a good score? I, I'm, I'm very... I tend to be resistant to the direct attack on my emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for future reference, guys, do not do not directly <laughs> attack my emotions. Yeah, I do it every... I try to do it every week. Uh, so <laughs> I, my, my goal is to, is to, yeah. is to make I me know you're an emotional burst into I think, tears I think Tony, on the air. Tony's thing is he somehow manages to get into my brain. I, I think know. one of my but, favorite reviews of yours ever, Michael, was when you admitted that you were moved to tears while watching Up and the, the sequence of the uh, couple falling in love. I would not have admitted it if uh, the guy uh, next to me at the Cannes Film Festival watching it, who was crying too, uh, hadn't uh, tweeted it within 10 seconds. That, you know, I was blubbering, <laughs> blubbering, blubbering. No, I honestly, I, use, I typically don't cry unless something falls on me. Giacchino's uh, a guy who, it sounds like insane hyperbole, but he's a guy you know, like the great operatic composer, like, like Puccini, like uh, a lot of the golden age Hollywood composers, Bernard Herrmann, Alex North, who just can hit you, you know, right between the eyes and where any number of hacks would try something similar and just try to, you know, grab every one of your heartstrings and yeah. yank at the same time. And uh, Alexandre Desplat, who did... Well, I was going to say, yeah. Fantastic yeah, Mr. Fox, yeah. almost in his league, I think. Yeah, no, I think Desplat is one of the most interesting and eclectic, you know, um, his scores tend not to resemble each other. And, and I, I think in Fantastic Mr. Fox, I mean, Wes Anderson is always a director who uses music in very interesting... Um, in very pointed ways to sometimes to play against or to counterpoint as well as to enhance the, the emotions of what's happening on screen. And I think that especially in Fantastic Mr. Fox where he's using this stop motion animated form where there's not a lot of expressivity that's coming off of the characters. It's all coming from the surroundings and from the sound. I think that that score is kind of playful and a little bit haunting and, and just does a lot to tie together that movie. What he has is what I think a lot of the really first-rate composers working in all kinds of mediums have. He doesn't have the primary impulse to reprise a theme or refrain over and over and over so you get it. That's what you get with Hans Zimmer, who in my view is a second Mm. rater. 
some scores better than others, and not an untalented man. But, but I was reaching into the bag and pulling out some of the same horrible. The same and stuff. it's also, I mean, I hated Sherlock Holmes. So the, Hans Zimmer plus Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> tough night at the movies for me. Yeah, I, I love the Hurt Locker as a film, but I can't remember for life of me now what the soundtrack. But I think that in, in that film, it's that is probably correct. You don't really want to notice music in a film that is trying very hard to kind of keep a lot of the old dramatic yeah. machinery out of the picture. Well, I think that's also an example of an approach to scoring where the music becomes an element of the of the overall sound design. Ambience almost. Yeah, yeah, and what Catherine Bigelow is, is doing in that movie so often is orchestrating these very tense set pieces. It's really like almost just sort of seven of these sequences that the movie's built around where where a bomb is being diffused and where you're just led up to this almost unbearable um, pitch of suspense mm. is you know is, is everything going to blow up who's going to get killed and the music does thread in and kind of help that build up We also need to talk about Avatar. James Horner, he's done all these movie soundtracks, Legends of the Fall, Titanic, A Beautiful Mind, gets a lot of work in Hollywood. Now he's done the best-selling movie of all time. What about the Avatar soundtrack, Tony? Does it work or doesn't it? Well, I, I think it does. I mean, it's it's almost the opposite or an interesting contrast to what we're talking about with The Hurt Locker, where you know the score in that film is is buried in the sound design and doing subtle, imperceptible things to, to what you're seeing and reacting to on screen. This is much more old-fashioned, like, mainstream, big Hollywood scoring. When you have the big battle sequence, you're going to hear the big, you know, sort of orchestral swell mm. up underneath it when the terrible sad thing happens and and the you know the the navi are dispossessed and their tree is destroyed <laughs> you're going to hear the wailing you know wordless human ululating voices mm. i think one of the reasons that he's been so successful and so often nominated and so often hired is that he does do that mainstream down the middle big movie Big emotion, big effect, big score. Yeah, big forgettable too. I think. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I I wonder if I wouldn't have responded better to the second half of that picture, which I didn't like very much. I, I really went with that film for the first ninety minutes. But if a different composer had hit all that sort of genocidal anguish from a different <laughs> from a different angle in the second half, just to ease up on the audience, I, I don't know. It might have made about four percent less at the box office, but it might have been twenty percent less manipulative experience. I think yeah. you can buy now off the, the different sample menus, genocidal anguish. <laughs> you, you, you notice, Greg, the, the tone with <laughs> which our uh, colleagues Michael Phillips and Tony Scott talk about Avatar is very similar to like you and I talking about the U2 tour. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was big. It's there big. were a lot it's of lights. <laughs> it's a big machine and it's going to roll over you whether you want to or not. Let's wrap up the Oscars real quick. Uh, best original song. We got two Randy Newman tunes from Princess and the Frog, which I'm, I'm not sorry to say I didn't see. We got a song by somebody I never heard of from Paris 36. We got something from Nine, and we got uh, that, that incredible T-Bone Burnett produced song that Jeff Bridges sings in, in Crazy Heart. Gee, let me guess which one you'd vote for. <laughs> I, 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 you know, as far as a song being a great song, that's the only one that would get me excited is the Crazy Heart. Yeah, that's the best song. I mean, that's a song that you could imagine, you know, just 
hearing on your car radio and, and liking. Your heart's on the loose You rode them sevens with nothing to lose And this ain't no place for the weary kind There's a reason that you haven't heard of Paris 36, which is that it's just a terrible movie. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's sort of, it, it's set in this kind of bogus music hall world of, of 1930s Paris. Uh, it's a French song in yeah. French. Um, and it's it's bogus in a way that's that's similar to the bogusness of, of Nine, which is trying mm-hmm. to evoke like Italy in the, in the, in the mid sixties. And, um, is is one of these screen adaptations of a, I think, kind of inexplicably popular stage musical. And the problem with it is that the music is just bad. I mean, is there is there a good song in that whole In Nine, movie? actually, there's one song I really like. It's one of the ones he wrote for the screen version, yeah. uh, the runway number. What is it? Uh, um, oh God, it's the one Kate Hudson. The cinema, that's the worst one. No, no, <laughs> no. It's, it's brainless, but I sort of like it. Michael, what about uh, Randy Newman? He's got two nominations this year for Best Original Song. You know, five seconds after the print was dry on The Princess and the Frog, they were singing those Randy Newman songs down at the showboat, part of the Disneyland theme park yeah. in Anaheim. Yeah. And and so, I mean, there's, mm, I think songs are written for some projects that that have another eye toward another life. and you know, but the I, irony of this, we have waxed rhapsodic about Randy Newman on this show any yeah. number of times, but he is one of the most cynical, black-hearted, uh, <laughs> you know, and I mean those as compliments. I mean, you know, what a dark songwriter, and to think that he's always churning out this stuff for the kiddie. Well, if you think also that he's writing about, I mean, he one of his most brilliantly cynical songs is Louisiana 1927, right, right. and he's revisiting the scene of that devastation to write these two... Very corny. I mean, every, you know, talk about cliches of old New Orleans. In the South Lane, there's a city way down on the river where the women are very pretty and all the men deliver. It's interesting. There's this dichotomy. He can't get arrested as a maker of pop albums, but when it comes to Hollywood soundtracks, he seems to be the go to guy. We'll continue talking music and movies with A.O. Scott and Michael Phillips in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, Greg and I will review the new posthumous release from country legend Johnny Cash. Partner, don't be shy. Come on down here and give us a 
and mansions of the sugar barons and the cotton kings. Rich people, poor people, all got dreams. Dreams do come true. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis here with Greg Cott and our guest this week, Michael Phillips, film critic at the Chicago Tribune, and A.O. Scott, film critic at the New York Times. We are talking about music in the movies. And Michael, let me ask you about trends in movie soundtracks. I remember talking with uh, director Cameron Crowe about what he called the Batmanization prevalent in soundtracks about 15 years ago where like, you know, the Warner Brothers recording artists were put in the Warner Brothers films and it was all this one big synergy. It made no sense whatsoever. It could be an irrelevant scene of the Joker running around and all of a sudden this bombastic song comes on and it's, you know, it seems like we're seeing less of that as far as I'm concerned. I, I think the big trend lately has been the Junoization of all these soundtracks <laughs> yeah. where everybody wants to sound like infantile indie rock, you know. 500 Days of Summer winds up doing it, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. But but I want to know what you guys are thinking. What's going on in soundtracks in indie film and in major films? Well, I, I think you've absolutely hit it. I mean, I mean, uh, but it, it depends on the director to keep a real eye and an ear on when it's right and when it isn't. They don't have any control over whether or not their finished product is the fifth film that year to kind of hit that same soundscape. But even in something like Up in the Air, uh, Jason Reitman's follow-up to Juno, yeah. you had a couple of very dubious uses of sensitive, folky stuff that basically is doing the, the, all the emoting for the audience. That's competing with my experience with it. It's not amplifying it. And that's, I think, is very quickly becoming a, a cliche. I mean, you see it even in a, in a very sort of you know mainstream commercial non-indie movie like Dear John, sort of, which is a, mm-hmm. the weepy with Channing Tatum and Amanda Seyfried that has these kind of like, you know, folky emo songs sort of stuck in there over the, over the montages. One interesting development, I think, it's a little bit like what we're talking about with the, the Hurt Locker, one of the most striking and unusual approaches to scoring and soundtrack music in, in recent years was, uh, was No Country for Old Men, in which there was mm. an inaudible mm. score yeah. <laughs> virtually composed by Carter Burwell. So we're, we're, we're trending away from this golden age epitomization of what a movie soundtrack is, you know, as defined by Ennio Morricone or, or uh, Nina Rota or uh, somebody like John Barry. And this music came back into rock in, in the mid-90s. You saw this, this entire movement based on, wow, these guys were making some amazing music that was basically background for for what was happening on the screen with these big stars, but at the same time, music that held up on its own and that 30, 40 years later was amplified by new generations of, of musicians who wanted to emulate it. Well, Marconi, too. I mean, he'll never be forgotten as long as Quentin Tarantino is still making movies because if you <laughs> yeah. if you go to Inglorious <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bastards, yeah. You're, yeah. Hearing, you're hearing almost wall to, well, not wall-to-wall Marconi, but... And in my view, you're hearing a pretty stupid misuse of great film music. But I don't question Tarantino's love and knowledge of 
Morricone is a, is a you know, he's great. I think it's also true that the kinds of collaborations between filmmakers and composers that, that you think about, you know, Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann or Fellini and Nina Rota has become more rare. An interesting exception to that might be Paul Thomas Anderson and John Bryan. John Bryan, yeah. Um, the way that music is used in those films, I'm thinking of Punch Drunk Love. And all at once I knew, I knew at once, I knew he needed me. Until the day I die, I won't know why, I knew he needed me. It sometimes seems as if the film is being made, and this is, is part of, I think, how they work, to follow or to accompany the soundtrack as much as the reverse. Or maybe it's because he needs me, 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 he needs me. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we are talking music and movies with film critics Michael Phillips and A.O. Tony Scott. Let's talk about your favorite directors, guys. Michael, I, I know you're a Minneapolis rock guy. Worship at the altar of the replacement. You, you got this rock thing, and you, what are your favorite rock directors in terms of using rock and roll? Really well, one of them is certainly Jonathan Demme. I mean, when I saw Stop Making Sense for the first time, and I was almost brand new to the Talking Heads at that time, mm -hmm. so that was a revelation every which way. I don't know, there's such joy in every frame of that. What about you, Tony? Well, I think um, Scorsese is one who has uh, he he. I think he sometimes falls back on it a little bit. I thought you know in in, in the Departed, dragging out the Rolling Stones once again. Although I like the Rolling Stones. So somebody really needs to buy that guy some new records. Well, that I, I feel like yeah. I mean the Rolling Stones, you know, yeah. are, are great. Yeah, but. Um, <laughs> I think also uh, I like the way that uh, Robert Altman used and incorporated music and musical performance in, in his film. I really enjoyed Prairie Home Companion a lot. It was uh, kind of his farewell to movie making, and but also captured a lot of how he felt about performance and got a lot of the sort of the backstage energy and how it crystallizes into these sometimes you know strange and goofy moments of musical art. Altman's a great choice, I think, Tony, because he was a guy who was paying attention yeah. to what was happening. And, you know, the fact that he used like a Leonard Cohen, a bunch of Leonard Cohen yeah. songs to illustrate McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. That was like, wow, who is this guy? You know, what's that voice? How does it fit in with this movie? And it was just a beautiful energy between those two things going on. At the time. Yeah, that was, that was yeah. the first time I had heard Leonard Cohen yeah. when I saw it. Like a lot Smiley. of people. And it's funny now. 40, <laughs> it's, it's funny what yeah. forty years will do. You know, forty yeah. years later, at the time in 1971, the the juxtaposition of this contemporary Canadian singer songwriter and the Western frontier story seemed 
deliberately anachronistic. You could mm. either buy it or not. Now, time, 40 years, have kind of mushed these things together, and it all seems very much part of the same mm. gestalt, you know? Yes, that's and, true. Uh, and, and, uh, it's and, very and moving. I, I love and, that story. And, and if I ever hear Hallelujah in a, in a oh, movie again, kill I'm, me I'm, now. <laughs> I'm walking out. Um, it was such a great why, song. Why and would then, somebody you know, think, was, you know, Shrek, we got this movie, Shrek, let's stick Hallelujah in oh, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You want to talk about a movie oh. that, uh, this whole idea of like, oh, isn't it fun to sample through our, you know, collective top 40 experience? Yeah. Remember when I moved in you And the whole air dog was moving too And every breath we drew was hallelujah 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 We're talking with Tony Scott of the New York Times and Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune, the co-hosts of At the Movies. Movies about rock and roll are movies that that's the center of the story. I mean, we've seen some really god-awful attempts of Hollywood trying to depict what it is to be in a rock and roll band. Which, uh, what's your favorite uh, low-ender? Well, you know what? Initially, I, you know, I think I was a big... The born with Christopher I was a big fan of Gary Busey and the Buddy Holly story when I first saw it as a, as a teenager. Right. And now I realize that movie's a... A load of bollocks, you know. It's <laughs> both La Bamba and the Buddy Holly stories. They're you know, they they sanitize these movies. artists that were were great and electric yeah. and exciting and make them so safe. Well, yeah. I, I think the biopic is often the wrong yeah. way to mm-hmm. go. I think maybe the tour movie, you know, whether it's it's uh, Almost Famous or Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Oh, yeah, um, great movie. Mm-hmm. Really good movie. Really strange. Really, you know, pretty grungy look at life almost making it on the road. It's a tour of the whole country. We're going to California. We get a percentage of the profits. That's good. He's got a slot for us. In case you haven't heard, we've only had three rehearsals. Yeah, but they were real long ones. What about Anvil? What do we think of Anvil? Oh, I love Anvil. Yeah. I, I think Anvil is terrific. Um, I had a funny experience when I saw it at a critic screening. And another critic friend of mine, who I won't name, was convinced <laughs> that it was a hoax. Mm-hmm. Um, who's not like – and, and I had never heard of the band Anvil. I'm not saying yeah, – yeah. you know, I'm not Most trying to had. strut out yeah. with my great heavy metal credibility here, of which I have – None, but I thought it was such a wonderful movie about falling in love with this kind of music when you're a kid, about being a suburban teenager who just like is smitten with the idea of making this music and and sticking with it. I love to entertain. It's part of it's 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 in my soul. Nothing is like being in the face of your fans. There's a moment, and we they're actual beautiful moments that human moments where you're actually you're in the same room as the people that love you you know it's hard to view a documentary now i think in the light of uh, this is spinal tap anymore with any sort of you know that's why i think your reaction to anvil was what it was waiting for the punchline to drop and they go to Stonehenge. You know, yeah. they go to Stonehenge. Yeah. They meet this producer who who has yeah. who has knobs that go to eleven. Yeah, so yeah. Spinal Trap well, has come true. And then you've got a movie like Metallica's "Some Kind of Monster." I was going to mention that, which one. I think is perversely one of the most fascinating rock documentaries I've ever seen, for all the reasons I didn't expect. I go, this I cannot believe. First of all. That they funded that and allowed that to actually see the light of day. Well, but it's like watch, it's like Who's yeah. Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but with a heavy metal band. I mean, it's, it's like it's, it's, it's a marriage therapy movie. It is unbelievable. I think it's stock. What? Which part of that is unclear to you? 
I think it sounds stock to my ears. I mean, you want me to write it down? I think oh, yeah, it, it feels it stock, I, I okay? So I... Come, no, come. when you say, you're telling me what to play right now, you're telling me, you should play with what Kirk's doing, and I'm telling you it's stock. You know what, guys? Why don't we just go in there and just hammer it out, all right, instead of hammering on each other? Well, it's uh, two great advocates for movies, two great advocates uh, for music in movies. Tony Scott of New York Times, Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune. Together they co-host at the movies. Gentlemen, pleasure having you on the show. Great, Jim. Pleasure was ours. A lot of great. fun. Thank you. Greg and I want to hear your comments on music, movies, or anything else we talk about on Sound Opinions. Leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, and we'll put it on the air. You can also email, interact at soundopinions.org, or connect to us on Facebook and Twitter. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grief, where is thy victory? Oh, life, you are a shining path And hope springs eternal just over the rise When I see my Redeemer beckoning me That voice, of course, is Johnny Cash asking, Oh, death, where is thy sting on Sound Opinions? One of the uh, last tracks he ever wrote and recorded. It's called 1 Corinthians 1555, and it's from this new album, American Six, Ain't No Grave, the sixth installment of the so-called American Recordings series that brought Cash together with producer Rick Rubin. An unlikely pairing, if ever there was one. This legendary, genre-defying giant, Johnny Cash, and producer Rick Rubin, 20 or 30 years his junior, the producer of artists such as Beastie Boys and Slayer and Run DMC. It really, for the most part, was a tremendous pairing and the perfect final act of one of the most storied careers in musical history in the United States. Rubin recorded Cash very simply, usually unfettered, not much adornment, sometimes some tasteful backing musicians added to that voice and that acoustic guitar. Rubin chose many of the songs. Some were Cash's originals over the course of these six albums. Others were famously Trent Reznor's Hurt or Nick Cave's The Mercy Seat, material that had a thematic connection to what Cash had always done, but new voices and Johnny was invigorated as he recorded them. American Five, what was, I thought, the final installment, A Hundred Highways was the subtitle, came out in 2006. Cash had died in September 2003, and Rubin said he wanted to wait until all the tributes and all the memorials kind of died down so that he could present some of Cash's final recordings. Now comes another set of final recordings, this Ain't No Grave collection. Mind you, As I said, there were five American Recordings albums, and there was a five-CD box set called Unearthed that had many tracks that weren't on the albums. There's a lot of Johnny Cash from this Reuben Cash partnership, and now there's even more. Let's play a track from the album. We'll come back and we'll give our review. This is the title song, Ain't No Grave, by Claude Ely, was the original songwriter. He was a gospel performer. This is Johnny Cash playing that song on Sound Opinions. There ain't no grave can hold my body down There ain't no grave can hold my body down 
When I hear that trumpet sound I'm gonna rise right out of the ground Ain't no grave can hold my body down Well, look way down the river And what do you think I see? I see a band of angels And they're coming after me Ain't no grave can hold my body down There ain't no grave can hold my body down Well, look down yonder, Gabriel Put your feet on the land and sea But Gabriel, don't you blow your trumpet Till you hear from me There ain't no grave can hold my body down Ain't no grave can hold my body down Just meet me, meet me in the middle of the air And if these wings don't fail me, I will meet you anywhere Ain't no grave can hold my body down There ain't no grave can hold my body down Ain't No Grave by Johnny Cash, the title song from his uh, sixth studio album with Rick Rubin Cash went out in a way that is somewhat disturbing to hear. You listen to these recordings, and they are a difficult listen. They remind me of Billie Holiday in the latter days of her career, that Lady in Satin record in particular, or Chet Baker, as he was going down slowly on record. You know, the voice just ravaged by the years. And you can hear Cash audibly deteriorating on these recordings. And at the same time, there's a remarkable strength there. There's almost a psychedelic quality to this record, Jim, as far as I'm concerned. Some of these songs, they're they're like reveries, almost like done in a semi-conscious state, it seems, like blurring the lines between the earthly world that he's about to leave behind and whatever is over that next horizon. And you can sort of see him looking ahead to that world. He, he clearly knew. He was, he was dying. Some of this music was recorded soon after his wife, the love of his life, June Carter Cash, yep. died in May of 2003. And Cash, he was fighting Parkinson's. Yes, Cash himself was, was to die in September of 2003. So he knew he had this small window of opportunity to work in. And at the same time, you can see him accepting his fate and, and looking ahead to the next world. I think this is a very moving document for all the difficulty I have listening to it sometimes. The psychedelic quality I hear about this sort of the mirage-like quality of some of these songs in that Cheryl Crow song, Redemption Day of all things, him muttering the words freedom, freedom, freedom over again. Freedom. Freedom. And even the song, uh, that Cool Water song, which you know some people may <laughs> think of as a schmaltzy song, I think he redeems it. And again, it's a song that's talking about a mirage, about an illusion, about what is real and what is not real. But with the dawn, I wake and yawn and carry on to water. Cool. 
water. I think it's a really powerful final document from the uh, Johnny Cash Rick Rubin collaboration, and I give it a buy it. Well, we rate things here on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale at Sound Opinions. And, uh, Greg, I would say it's a burn it. I think that there are three excellent moments here. Uh, Tom Paxton's Wonder Where I'm Bound, Chris Christopherson's For the Good Times, and that Ed McCurdy anti-war anthem, Last Night I Had the Strangest Dream. The rest of it is painful or embarrassing. Cool Water, you know, popularized by Frankie Lane. It's just horrible and awkward and drags the record down. And the closing... A cover of that traditional Hawaiian ballad, Aloha A. You know, this is not worthy material of Johnny Cash, and I think this is the first time Ruben has stepped over the line from paying tribute to this artist he loved and admired to exploiting him. I don't see the reason oh, for this album. I don't album. think he's exploiting him I, at all. I think it's exploitative. I think a lot of this, Greg, should have been a private moment or outtakes. You know, they're just not up to the par of the, and I will underscore, five albums and a five CD box set, ten discs worth of material already ready from this collaboration if the best moments on American 5 which was also a disappointing record were combined with the best moments on American Recording 6 this new one you would have had one decent album that still would have been painful that could have been defended at least as okay this is for archival value Johnny was recording as he was dying and this is history and now we have it as it is I I think this album is, is unnecessary and painful except for those couple of tracks which I say burn We're going to take a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, but when we return, we're going to review the new album from poet-musician Gil Scott-Heron, and then it's Jim's turn to add a song to the Desert Island Jukebox. The first time Ever I saw your face I thought the sun rose In your eyes And the moon and the stars Were the gifts you gave To the dark And the endless sky My love And the first time Ever I kissed your mouth I felt the earth move this morning When you knocked for my door this morning Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is Gil Scott Heron with a song called Me and the Devil, a Robert Johnson cover that appears on his new album, I'm New Here. 
Gil Scott Heron, one of the great songwriters of the last several decades, a protest singer from the 70s, has not recorded much in the last 25 years. This, in fact, is only his second studio album in that time. But during the 70s, he really defined a unique sound. He bridged jazz, soul, protest music, poetry into a unique vision that anticipated artists like uh, Chuck D of Public Enemy or Michael Fronte of Spearhead. The entire hip-hop movement, really, can be found in those early records. People may know him from songs like The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, the top 30 single, Johannesburg, Angel Dust. All of these songs were politically charged examinations of the culture we lived in, steeped in jazz and soul, and sung in that baritone voice of tremendous authority and power. He's had a lot of trouble in recent years, though. Been to jail a couple of times for uh, drug addiction, primarily. And you can hear some of the troubles that he's been having in his life reflected in the tone of his voice on this new record. We're going to review it in a second, but let's play a track from it first. Where Did the Night Go? from Gil Scott Heron on Sound Opinions. Long ago the clock washed midnight away, bringing the dawn, bringing the dawn, bringing the dawn. Oh God, I must be dreaming. Time to get up again and time to start up again. Pulling on my socks now. Where did the night go? Should have been asleep when I was sitting there drinking beer and trying to start another letter to you. Don't know how many times I didn't write again last night. Should have been asleep when I turned the stack of records over and over so I wouldn't be up by myself. Where did the night go? Should go to sleep now and say, pick up a job and money because I spend it all on unlined paper and can't get past. Dear baby, how are you? Brush my teeth and shave. Look outside. Sky is dark. Think it may rain. Where did it? Where did it? Where did That is Gil Scott Heron with Where Did the Night Go from his new album, his first in 16 years, I'm New Here. Greg, we were just talking about Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash, and a lot of critics are saying that the head of XL Recordings, Scott Heron's label, Richard Russell, was trying for a similar Rick Rubin-Johnny Cash-like partnership with Gil Scott Heron, who he initially approached while Heron was uh, serving time in, in Rikers Island. I don't hear that. There's a lot of misguided overproduction on this record. That version of uh, the Robert Johnson song is like as envisaged by Massive Attack. Other tracks are kind of pointlessly overdone, and it feels like Heron was like in a separate room, if not a separate state. You have a little bit of star power added uh, with the presence of Blur and Gorilla's leader, Damon Albarn, although he really doesn't bring much to the proceedings. People are going to be thinking after the Cash review and now this uh, Scott Heron review that I'm just, you know, harsh on musical legends. There is no denying the accomplishments of Gil Scott Heron. He, he was one of the architects of hip hop, but he's not doing what he had done best here. First of all, the voice is shot. You know, there's a lot of lazy slurring of words instead of that potent clarion call that typified his best work. But it's a very personal record. It opens and closes with a reminiscence of being raised by his grandmother. And a lot of the other tracks are about, about his life and kind of philosophizing about where he is at this point when his strength was always looking at the world around him and giving us those laser-like 
insights that nobody else had. When you think about the latest chapters in the lifelong novel of Gil Scott Heron that, that have come and gone that he could have commented on, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, the election of President Obama, and instead he's talking about he didn't sleep well last night. Wow, it's a huge disappointment, this record. On the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, I have to say it's a trash it record. You know, that may sound harsh, and I also hear what you're saying about the fact that he could have commented on these major events. But my sense of it is that Gil Scott Heron really wasn't present for any of those in a lot of ways. He was a man who was adrift. And in many ways, this album sounds like Gil Scott Heron was just sort of drifting through it. And Richard Russell, you know, in a sort of heroic fashion, tried to patch something together from what was left of this guy. Um, It's really sad and difficult to listen to. Whereas I got the sense with the Cash-Rubin collaborations that Johnny Cash was still very much present in what he was doing. I'm not sure how invested Gil Scott Heron was in this work. I've never heard him this vulnerable and fragile. And from that standpoint, this is a fascinating listen. Because in the past, you did get this sense of a guy who did take care of himself and did understand the world and had powerful insights into it. And here he sounds to be deteriorating before our ears, and we have insight into why that is. But at the same time, it's about a 28-minute record. It feels very patchwork. There are few actual songs here, and Russell seems to be creating this cautionary mood piece out of these various fragments of Gil Scott Heron's life. But as a full album, it really doesn't work. I was hoping, 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 Jim, that this would be a triumphant comeback for one of the artists that I love, but it is not. And at best, I have to give it a burn it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on this show, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island Jukebox and pop a quarter in it to find a song that we cannot live without. And this week it is Jim DeRigatis' turn. Thank you, Greg. Movies and music are on my mind. We were talking with A.O. Scott and uh, Michael Phillips. We were talking a little bit about Wes Anderson, whose fantastic Mr. Fox has been nominated for an Oscar for Best Soundtrack. I think Wes Anderson, along with Jonathan Demme, uses music in his films better than anybody else on the scene today. Mm. I'm not a film critic. I don't even play one on TV, okay? But I will say that The Royal Tenenbaums, Anderson's 2001 movie, may well be the best movie ever made. I certainly love it to pieces, and the music is a big part of it. There's a scene where Richie Tannenbaum, Luke Wilson, is returning after a year at sea on a freighter, self-imposed exile after he failed as a tennis star. And uh, Margot Tannenbaum, who's played by Gwyneth Paltrow, it's his sister, but adopted, so they're not really related, is supposed to pick him up. And this wonderful Alec Baldwin narrative comes over, and he had made a request for his usual escort, the one from his days on the circuit, to meet him at the pier by way of the Green Line bus. As always, she was late. And out of the mist comes Margot Tenenbaum, Gwyneth Paltrow, and you finally realize that her brother is in love with his adopted sister, and it's this all scored to Nico's These Days, an incredible tune that was written for her by Jackson Brown. 
Nico had been the singer of the Velvet Underground, placed there by Andy Warhol. They couldn't live with her for long. She only lasted three or four songs on that first album, and then she was gone, okay? But boy, she had something, because in addition to Jackson Brown writing for her, Tim Harden wrote tunes for her, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, and on her first solo album, 1967's Chelsea Girl, Tom Wilson, who had produced the Velvets, came to produce, and three of the four Velvets, Lou Reed and John Kell and Sterling Morrison, came to play on it. This woman was... You know, Mm -hmm. magnetic. Richard Goldstein said that she sang in perfect mellow ovals. She was the sound of a cello waking up in the morning. (laughs) I think it's one of my favorite lines of criticism ever. It's These Days by Nico from the Royal Tenenbaum soundtrack on Sound Opinions. I don't do too much talking these days. the things that I forgot to do And all the times I had the chance to I stopped my rambling I don't do much gambling these days. These days, these days I seem to think about how all the changes came about my way. And I wonder if I'd Nico with these days on Sound Opinions. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to celebrate one of our favorite mediums. We're going to play our favorite songs about radio. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by the ace team of Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, kind of the Ari and Uzi Tenenbaum of the Sound <laughs> Opinions family. And, of course, our fearless leader, our executive producer, the royal Tenenbaum of the crew, Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Michael Reed in Atlanta, Georgia, and I caught your 
podcast on Valentine's Day about the songs to set the mood. And I noticed that you're lamenting the lack of a revival for uh, Romeo Void. And I want to let you know that there is a band out there that fits that to a T. They're called Operator Please. They've been around for about six, seven years, and they're out of uh, Australia. Their front woman, Amanda Wilkinson, is amazing. They've got pop. They've got punk. You should check them out. Thanks. Money out of money out of here today. I got another 50 seconds and I'm ready to play. Say money out of money out of here today. I got another 50 seconds and I'm ready to play. I got my, got my, got my, got my rugged and ham. Now leave it to a little bit. I don't think you understand. With a dirty, 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 dirty look in your face. I bet you know beef jerky is an Hey, Jim and Greg, Steve calling from Salt Lake City. I listen to the podcast every week, even though my musical tastes are quite a bit different than yours. Because of our musical differences, sometimes I take a closer look at artists you don't like more than the ones that you do. This is the case with uh, Taylor Swift that you talked about. I was as surprised as anyone when she won the album Grammy, but when you guys dissed Fearless, I had to listen to her record. After several complete listens, I must say she has an authentic honesty and sincerity to her writing that seems like it would completely resonate with teen girls. Joey from Raleigh called and guaranteed that adolescent girls will definitely relate to Taylor Swift. You don't know anything about young womanhood. You've never been through it. Go ask your teenage daughter if those songs make her feel like somebody else knows exactly what she's feeling, because I guarantee you she'll say yes. I found Joey's impassioned defense of Taylor quite moving and would tend to agree with her assessment. Thanks for the podcast, and I'll be listening for the next artist that you trash. Maybe one man's trash is another man's, or young girl's, treasure. Thanks.
no more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.